This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. This week, looking forward and back, the 10-year anniversary of the worst terrorist attack in our nation's history. What happened that day? What have we learned since? And how has the office of the President of the United States evolved? Our guest, legendary White House correspondent Ann Compton of ABC News. She's covered every administration since Gerald Ford and was the only broadcast reporter on Air Force One throughout the events of 9-11. And then Arun Chaudhry. In his first broadcast interview since leaving the Obama administration, he was the president's official videographer and the source of so much creativity and innovation, a polyoptics exclusive. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Of course, Josh was the production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, as always, it is great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. Very special show today, approaching 24 hours away from the 10th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center, 9-11-2001. The guests we put together are people who really span that 10-year history, from the woman, Ann Compton of ABC News, who is actually the only broadcast journalist allowed on Air Force One as the president left Sarasota, made his way to uh, the Air Force bases of the West before coming back to Washington, D.C., and then Arun Chaudhry, uh, the White House, the first White House videographer, the person who came into the White House with Barack Obama and covered all the visual elements of how President Obama prosecuted the war on terrorism. Indeed, something very special. Uh, these are two people that we know and have a relationship with and who we have great respect for. And for the polyoptics audience, uh, to have this unique perspective of Ann Compton and her experience over almost 30 years covering the White House uh, and on 9-11 itself and since, and a looking forward and an experience of lessons learned and what what polyoptics tells us about visual communications in the presidency with uh, Arun Chaudhry is going to make this a great show, Josh. Ann Compton, ABC News, uh, so great to have you joining Adam Belmar and me on polyoptics. I cannot believe, gentlemen, that after the years that you and both of you and uh, and I and uh, different administrations covered this place, 10 years, it, sometimes it feels like to me like it was only yesterday. Well, it all began with President George W. Bush and you in Sarasota, Florida. I mean, you were the uh, the only broadcast correspondent who was allowed up the stairs on Air Force One. Uh, to accompany the president on a flight that you really didn't know where it was going to end that day, did it? It was the flight to nowhere, but it started actually in a place of such innocent. It just happened to be my day to be in the travel pool. And as everyone knows, the president can't take 100 of us with him in every room. So I was one of the only reporters standing at the back of the classroom down in Florida when and the children were running through their reading drills. Their teacher was a real kind of drill sergeant. And... 
I was stunned that Andy Card, the chief of staff, came in and whispered to the president. No one inter- interrupts a president, even in front of second graders. And then, of course, the look. We all saw it on President Bush's face. A look of gravity as if to say, you have no idea how bad this is. I, I sidled over to the side of the classroom where Andy Card was now standing. And we had heard before we came into the classroom, this is the era before Blackberries, before uh, smartphones. Uh, one reporter had heard that there been a plane crash in New York, and to Andy, I made my hand up like this in the shape of an airplane diving down. Andy nods and puts up two fingers. One plane crash could be an accident. Two had to be trouble, and that's how the day began. I am just overpowered hearing your description of it, knowing your uh, tenacity of purpose as a reporter. For many people, uh, the day-in, day-out coverage of a presidency can uh, become stale and uh, everything is taken for granted, but never for Ann Compton. I mean, you were standing in the back of that room doing, uh, in a hopeful and honest way, your best to cover the events of the day, but your experience, having been covering the White House since the early 70s again you knew (laughs) immediately what was going on (laughs) that it was a very uh particular and special moment and yet you had to fight for yourself and for all of your colleagues to stay aboard air force one and do the reporting that you did I did, and when we were after the president uh, uh, left the classroom, uh, Ari Fleischer, the press secretary, came to me. Where we came out of the classroom onto kind of a small parking lot, and he said, "Stand right here. I'm going to bring the president to make a statement." I said, "No." No, no, I'm in a parking lot. My camera's not plugged into anything. In the cafeteria, we have live cameras that New York is watching. You've got to go there. They didn't want to go in and scare the children, but the president did go in and make his statement there saying, an apparent terrorist attack, I must return to Washington. When we raced to the airplane and rushed on board and slammed the doors. We all thought we were going back to Washington. We didn't know the Pentagon had just been hit. And that the minute that happened, everything changed. This was not an attack on America's financial heart in New York. This was an attack on the American government. And frankly, I know he was criticized for not going straight back to Washington. I can't imagine the president being allowed back into Washington when one building has been hit and the the White House very well could have been the Capitol. So the idea that we were flying on this plane in circles, basically, over the panhandle of Florida, we, I got the impression that you know, the president can run, but he can't hide. It was unlike any other moment I've ever had covering the White House. And that day you had a special responsibility as the pool correspondent. So not only were you feeding information to Peter Jennings and the ABC World News Tonight team, you also had responsibility to uh, Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and their teams and the cable networks that are covering this story visually. How actually, when you landed at, at Offutt and Barksdale Air Force bases, were you able to report as a pool reporter and giving uh, the collected information that you'd been able to gather on these previous flights and, and share it? across the broadcast spectrum. 
Well, you raise a good point. On board the plane, I couldn't report anything. I knew the president was on the phone to Dick Cheney. I knew he had talked to uh, Mayor uh, Giuliani and Governor Pataki in New York. But I couldn't tell anybody that. I just kept meticulous notes in my uh, reporter's notebook. When we landed at the first stop, I'd gone back to the, the galley in the back of the of Air Force One. There's a tall, blonde uh, steward named Eddie. And I said, Eddie, what's for dinner? And uh, obviously nobody was eating the chicken sandwich they had for lunch. And he said, Ann, we've got one meal on board and enough fuel to get back to Washington. We landed at Barksdale because the president was running out of fuel. And when we landed, we were told, turn off your Blackberry. We didn't have Blackberries. Your pagers, your cell phones. They didn't want anybody to know where the president was. We didn't know at the time, that, but the pilot Mark Tillman had gotten uh, a radio message that there had been traffic saying that Angel is next. That's the, at the time, was the secret code name for Air Force One. So they landed, refueled. We took off again. That, and that's when the others, including the Time Magazine correspondent, a guy named Jake Carney, wonder whatever happened to him. Whatever happened were to left that guy. On, left on the tarmac there in Louisiana. But I knew that each time I took my little Motorola cell phone, or actually at Barksdale, they gave me a military telephone that I couldn't work, they had to have an officer dial it for me. The only way to report was to be able to call to ABC and dictate everything I saw uh, going on, everything I knew, and have them find a way to pass it on to the other networks. And eventually the easiest way was to be simply for Peter Jennings to put me on the air. Everyone could hear it. I have print reporter colleagues who were sitting back in Sarasota were stuck there for days, and they said their only pool reports they could get were the ones they could see right off the air. And I knew it was an immediate way. I also knew the tone of my voice, the uh, the control or the lack of control I showed would reflect what I was seeing on the plane. So I tried to be very mindful of that, knowing that facts are important, uh, but a sense of urgency was important too. Not being able to have a contemporaneous account waiting for opportunity to hear from you and share with the rest of the country and the journalists who would uh, dig deeper on the elements that you were sharing. It, brings into uh, light the idea that we've learned so much more over the last 10 years. You just mentioned uh, Colonel Mark Tillman, uh, was the, the Air Force uh, One pilot throughout the Bush administration. I had seen an interview recently with Mark um, about that day and about his words of concern and that he'd been advised that Angel was next. Did you have any sense of that at the time? When did you come to know about those other details, Anne? Well, there are a couple of things that we didn't learn till much, much later. What did Andy Card whisper in the president's ear? For months, he wouldn't tell us. And he finally, of course, told us that with a chilling economy of words, Andy Card very wisely kept it very minimal. He said, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. The president needed it framed exactly uh, that tight. And for Colonel Tillman, we knew Ari Fleischer came back and nudged us and said, look off the wings. And there was an F-16 off the wing where I sit, F-15 off the other wing. So we knew that we were up in the air. We knew that other planes were probably not up in the air, were kind of a flying target. But the idea that um, if and by then we had been told that indeed the Pentagon had been hit. Interesting. On board Air Force One, in the front bulkhead wall of each cabin, and we were in the press cabin at the rear uh, starboard the side monitors. of the... 
there are TV monitors, and at that point, 10 years ago, they were hooked up to, you know, videotapes. And the the navigator on the plane was able to pick up a very weak signal from local stations on the ground. So imagine sitting on the top of a building with rabbit ears. That's kind of the reception we're getting. But we saw that first tower fall, and we knew so little about what was going on on the air. We thought there could have been 20, 30,000 30, people in that in those two buildings. We watched with this, this kind of stunned disbelief, very little information coming to us. The president had two, maybe three secure telephone lines, so he had a telephone and that, that, that minimal video. But we did not have a sense of the broader uh, crisis here, and we knew very little about the, the trauma going on on the ground of the, uh, especially at Ground Zero. And uh, so when we landed, ABC was able to give me a quick update, but not much. It was all, almost all information going from me back to them. And you came into the White House in 1974, and uh, you've covered every president since. And there seems to be this dividing line uh, on September uh, the 11th, 2001, between uh, the administrations of those prior presidents that, despite the military incursions that did uh, happen during the prior administrations uh, after Vietnam, but before September 11th, and everything since, how has serving as a member of the White House press corps changed from before that date, from Ford forward, and from Bush and Obama after that date? Well, of course, we're driven by technology, as you well know. And in the first hours that I spent here at the White House, uh, Vietnam was coming to an end. And I remember sleeping here all night in the booth, same little booth I'm sitting in now, uh, sleeping all night because they were trying to evacuate people up off the roof of the embassy. We didn't know. But we couldn't see anything real time. There were really no phones that got us the information. I had to rely on somebody coming up from the White House situation room, a staffer coming and saying, this is what we think now, this is what we think now. So now that information, and especially the visual information, is so immediate that it puts us all at warp speed on what we're reporting. I used to be able to be much more careful, much more judicious about the words I chose. Now it just has to come off the top of your head. And there was one instant on 9-11 on when I have no idea how the words came out of my mouth. We had landed at the Strategic Air Command headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, because there the president could go to a secure bunker and not just be secure, he could do a video conference with the White House, with the Pentagon, with New York, with the Joint Chiefs. And while the president got out of the car and didn't go up into this big, huge headquarters building at the airport, he he, he turned around and went in this little... Uh, uh, kind of a shack. It was a little cinder block building, looked like a, a, a gardening shed. And he went in, and the staff went in, and the Secret Service went in, and the military. More and more people into, well, clearly, it was the shoot down into the underground area. And out of my mouth, talking live to Peter Jennings on the air, and I said, and there he goes, down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I said that. But it gave a, a, a sense of how every step of the way that day, we watched a huge crisis unfold before our eyes. 
And uh, that makes things so different than it was uh, back in uh, December 2nd, 1974, when I first walked up this driveway as one of the ABC News Network correspondents. You're listening to uh, Polyoptics on POTUS, Channel 124. We're speaking with uh, ABC News correspondent Ann Compton of ABC News Radio. And one of the things that uh, is chilling to me as I hear you recount this with such passion and such... uh, uh, immediacy as you as you relive this this day for us is that as you watched for all of us my recollection is watching you and hearing you and Peter and uh, it makes me wonder uh, whether you've had a chance to see the National Geographic interview with President Bush and what your thoughts about his recollections of that day and the days afterwards uh, reconcile with what you saw and what you felt, or did he really shed some light on those days in that interview? I have seen the interview, and remember, it was done by a television documentary producer uh, who was talking to the president. It just happened to be the day after they got Osama bin Laden. And I it left me so hungry for more. I have a hundred questions for President Bush about that day. And I think he was very sparing in what he said. And of course, he's kept silent about it for 10 years. Uh, we all have memories that are slightly different. Andy Card remembers mouthing the words two planes to me. I remember him putting up two fingers. Little things like that will always be uh, uh, in our memory, in our own little way of remembering things. But I think what the president, the, the track of what I heard President Bush say about um, you know what he heard at the school, what he decided to stay say in the classroom, what he, uh, how he kept arguing with his staff, with Condoleezza Rice, with Vice President Cheney. I've got to get back to Washington. We have to show the government is up and running. Um, all of that rings very, very true. And I think the there was a moment I saw him on Air Force One when we were finally heading back to Washington, and he came actually into the Secret Service cabin ahead of ours and to thank them. And he came back to the door. Now, remember, there are two of us reporters sitting there, Sonia Ross of the Associated Press and me. And he, uh, I grabbed my notebook, and he waved it down, did, did the meeting this is off the road. He pushed his hand out and said, no, no. And he just said, yeah, that he had talked to his wife, that it, he, you know, he, 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 a little bit of that tension had gone, gone out of his frame, out of his shoulders, out of his arms. But he also said, we're going to get those thugs. And I've, you know, it's off the record, couldn't use it. I did pass it on to my colleagues, but I said it, it, it was a moment that he did not want to be quoted because he wanted to be so careful about what he said in those hours. But I think it also showed me that when on the day that this happened, he knew so much more about the potential of al-Qaeda, the potential of attacks, the danger of a terrorist attack on U.S. soil. He had asked for CIA assessments of it far more than those of us average Americans who did not have our eyes on that. So, Anne, moving forward then to the administration of Barack Obama, and this week he gave his uh, address before a joint session of Congress. Um, Thinking back to the previous presidency you've covered, is the burden of the presidency greater than it's ever been because there's so much more information that is at his fingertips at any point? And how does Barack Obama seem to wear that burden versus President Reagan, for example? Well, it's a terrific question, but I don't think the additional information 
adds to the burden. I think it helps a president with his vision. And I think a president who was flying blind, as I think President Bush often felt he was that day, would have loved to have had more information. Uh, and President Reagan uh, was a president who governed with his eyes on the horizon. And he would say, this is where we need to go. Uh, and and he would be probably less concerned about not knowing small details here and there, but he would know exactly where he wanted that ship of state to head. The old joke was when uh, President Reagan took over, he, of course, defeated Jimmy Carter, who had been a, 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 a nuclear uh, a naval officer. Uh, the joke was that uh, Ronald Reagan was up on the uh, the uh, the bridge of the ship of state saying head that way and Jimmy Carter was down in the engine room trying to figure out how the how the uh, nuclear engine worked and uh, very different management styles I think President Obama uh, has at his fingertips more information probably more timely information but that also adds to the um, uh, to the complexities of how he makes decisions. He also had, I think in his first year as president, the baptism by fire of an economy that was falling off a cliff. And that so consumed him and his administration that first year. That was his version of what President Bush went after, went, went through nine months into his administration when 9-11 uh, and the response to terrorism consumed his administration for the next year or so. I think about uh, your love of history and your appreciation for the U.S. presidency, having traveled all over the world and reported across so many different administrations. And it makes me wonder what your take on the current field of reporters that populate the uh, the White House briefing room. I mean, give us a sense of, of, and I should also mention for our listeners, past president of the White House Correspondents Association, so many honors that you've collected in your career. Give us a sense of where we are. Are we watering this down? Are we losing some of the context and the historical appreciation that you and Mark Noller and some of the, the old guard uh, who've, who've done this for so long and so well uh, have always brought to the job? I was 27 years old when I walked up the driveway back under the Ford administration, and there was a lot I didn't know, and I covered with such giants here, the Peter Lissagores, uh, the Carol Kirkpatricks of the Washington Post, the the, uh, the Helen Thomas, uh, Merriman Smith uh, was gone, but Doug Cormier, uh, right. you know, I, I mean, these were, Frank Cormier and Doug Cornell, I mean, these were the real lions of journalism then, and I was very young, and I did my best to keep up. Bob Pierpoint from uh, CBS had been here since before I was born. So um, so I, I covered the White House. Now I am in that position of somebody who knows the institutional ways in which the White House operates. And I see brilliant young reporters coming along who know the issues, who are twice as fast as me at figuring things out, of seeing clearly uh, down the road. But I can bring balance that with some of knowing that you, you can't go that way. You cannot do that. That, you know, when, when a White House aide ends up resigning or a member of Congress ends up resigning, you know in your bones that this is he's never going to be able to explain his way out of him. His career is over. So I have a different, I have that older graybeard experience now, but I will tell you that on September 
11th. On the night before, we had just arrived in Sarasota, and it was very late at night, and I usually don't go out to dinner at night, but my good friend David Sanger of the New York Times and I said we'd go to the big old hotel dining, very old stuffy place, and we'd go have a bite to eat. It was very late at night, and the president was eating in the next room with his brother and some others, and Andy Card came by the table and chatted, and I told Andy that I said that very day, September 10th, was the 28-year anniversary of me joining ABC News. And I think the next day... Andy Card, who could have knocked us all off the plane, said this is an international crisis, we need no press with it, decided, no, we'll let somebody stay, and we'll pick somebody who has an appreciation for the way this works. And I'm hope, I hope that was part of his motivation, because I think it was extremely important to keep press with the president. The worst thing we could have done is to be standing on the ground there in Barksdale and watch the president of the United States fly into oblivion and not have a member of the press there to help make to help bring the story to the uh, to the American people and for that point for the world when a new president comes into office and his staff surrounds him they often think they're at the center of the universe uh, and they look at institutions around the White House like the military aspect of the White House like the ushers staff and certainly the White House press corps as uh, who are these people uh, we're in charge here now but <laughs> it, it, but the, the institutional knowledge does really rest with them and people like you and as Adam and I were both sh- trading stories about uh, our relationship with Ann Compton I remember so clearly uh, how how welcomed I felt and the kind of maternal instinct you seem to to give toward Jeremy Gaines, David Levy, myself, and I suspect you've done that for previous and successive administrations. But, yeah, and I claimed uh, the same. Exactly. I said, well, well, she, you know, she took good care of me, too. Uh, uh, how do, well, how do you did, look at the, at the people who come in and out of the White House? It's in my own interest, Josh, aside from the fact that I really liked you and Chad and Jeremy and David and all the rest of them. Uh, uh, we have an old saying here in the White House press corps: "We were here when you got here. We'll be here when you leave." That's right. So, so I've heard part it many of it times. is that we, uh, we. So, part of it is that. But I am an American. I'm a citizen. I'm a voter. I'm a mom. I'm a resident of Washington D.C. And it's in my interest as an American to have an administration that appreciates the power in their hands. I think, frankly, your administration did not do right by the White House Travel Office, which was career professionals who uh, took very good care of us in the press, but also did, I think, and I knew them for years, did a very professional job, and I think your administration did them a great disservice. That was just terrible inexperience in the first year. It, and it was an arrogance, and yep. and, uh, and I think, so. and the Bush administration came in with a slightly different background. Remember, President Bush. I used to know him when he was the smart aleck older son of the President of the United States, and I was following them around the golf course. I was the pool reporter one day in Kenny Bunkport, where President George Herbert Walker Bush was playing golf with his son and and the and the club pro. And as they finished 18 holes in one hour and 53 minutes, uh, George W. Bush, we ne- they never called him George Jr. It was always W. Came over and popped his finger on my reporter's notebook said, write that down, one hour, 53 minutes, foursome. And the White House doctor behind me, who had seen several presidents, said, 
I'm calling this aerobic golf. You know, it. The, the George W. Bush came into the White House having lived through his father's administration, having a far different take than somebody who comes in from uh, a whole nother universe. And notice how many governors end up as presidents. Governors have executive experience. They have security details. They live in a mansion or at least in a government housing. And I think governors often have the easiest transition here because they understand what it means to to execute executive authority. I want to ask you for the benefit of uh, all of our listeners here on POTUS, who uh, your father among them. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, what What's going on at ABC News uh, as you all tackle the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, Ann? Well, it's interesting. It takes so many people to cover all these different venues. We did not have reporters in Shanksville 10 years ago. We certainly had reporters at uh, at the Pentagon here at the White House, and we scrambled people to Ground Zero, which at that moment was a disaster site. You couldn't even get in there, but certainly eyewitnesses. What really strikes me is how much now we cover things with eyewitness reports, with cell phone video, with people calling well, on, on Skype. Uh, so we are still committing in the old sense reporters, camera crews, microwave trucks, uh, uh, fiber optic lines, eyes and ears of traditional news media, although it's all high definition now instead of uh, uh, the old uh, analog, but we are still deploying huge troops and we're packing it all into one day. It is not a whole campaign. It's not a whole inaugural week. It is one day And I think it's interesting, ABC News Radio is even going to cover live the only remarks President Obama will make all that day, not at Ground Zero, which is too sacred to have a president give a political talk, not at uh, at, uh, Shanksville, where he'll lay a wreath, not at at the Pentagon, where he will mourn those who were in military uniform who were were lost. But he will go, it was to be at the National Cathedral, now it's going to be at the Kennedy Center because of some damage the storms caused at the Cathedral. The president will actually speak at a concert for hope, a prayer vigil uh, concert for hope at the Kennedy Center that night. And that's where he will give what his aides tell me will be a chance to speak for the nation, basically looking back at the lives lost, mourning, grieving, still feeling the pain of the lives lost, and the moment that brought this country together. We hear precious little of that in Washington these days. And Compton, you are the best there is, and I am so grateful that we could have you on Polyoptics to share your insights and your experience on this 10-year anniversary. Let's do it again. Thanks, Han. Josh, uh, looking backwards over the last 10 years uh, since 9-11 has been uh, an amazing opportunity, especially with Ann Compton, but I want to turn the page and look forward for a bit at uh, the visual communications elements of the presidency, and we have a essentially an exclusive first broadcast interview with uh, Arun Chaudhry, who was uh, the president's, President Obama's uh, personal videographer, worked with him through the campaign and through the administration until just recently. Josh, I, in my opinion, his work is not only innovative, but groundbreaking in pushing forward some of the things that you started and I tried to put in place in the Bush administration. That's right, Adam. And in fact, we're not going to know for many years, uh, 5, 10, 15 years, 
how in, how indeed groundbreaking our runs work uh, is because a lot of the things that he shoots get sent directly to the National Archives. Uh, it's the kind of thing that doesn't perhaps pop on the evening news, uh, but it is stuff that shows truly the presidency as it really is. What happens in the holding rooms in those few minutes before the president walks on stage, the people he meets in the hall, the banter he has with aides. I was reading an article about Arun's work a while ago, and he speculated what it would be like to actually have uh, the kind of intimate videography that Arun has done of Barack Obama between Lyndon Johnson and Thurgood Marshall or the people that he that that President Johnson would haul down from Capitol Hill to press to enact legislation and these are the kinds of moments that probably have not been released from the from uh, the National Archives or from the White House they will eventually and Iran has created a historic document unlike any others but Many of us will not see it for years and years. Arun uh, Chaudhry, welcome to Polyoptics. We are honored to have you here on the show with us. Oh, thanks so much. I'm psyched to be here. You know, uh, Josh and I have been uh, in your uh, realm at, during different presidencies, working on visual communication, in many cases producing uh, visual supplements to the record, but never ever in the way that you have been able to do it and with the technology and the commitment really from the commander-in-chief in a personal relationship with you to allow you to be in these places uh, you started uh, during the campaign and really just became a, a very important component of this administration uh, it must have been just a, a whirlwind for you did you even expect to have the kind of access that you had during your term in, in uh, the Obama administration uh, it all it all did develop very organically um, on the on the campaign video was something that uh, was taken very seriously. There were you know a number of people involved in it. Uh, my boss, Cato Barthana, who hired me, um, uh, amongst many others. But quickly we we realized that uh, the best messenger for the president's uh, agenda, or you know as the candidate, his message was himself. And so it made more and more sense to make sure we were getting all of the, his speeches, all of his interactions with the public. Uh, but it wasn't until he got a, a bigger plane <laughs> that we were able to, you know, squeeze on board and actually start really getting inside the bubble. Well, so tell us what kind of kit you brought with you and what a day was like for for you carrying a video camera. What kind of equipment did you use? How how much time did you spend actually shooting versus finding a quiet place to edit and then and then getting up into uh, onto the web and and what what kind of traction did you get in terms of uh, people watching you and through which vehicles? Uh, well, this is very different uh, on the campaign than it is in the White House, where uh, there's actually you know far fewer uh, individuals who are able to be devoted to this. Uh, on the campaign, uh, on the on the trail, there were at first three of us, and then uh, we added a fourth, uh, which would be a, a separate still photographer. But each of us would have uh, you know a high def uh, video camera. We used the Panasonic HVX, so a nice camera, mm -hmm. a tripod, uh, and a computer, so that any one of the three of us at any time could, in fact, uh, post oh, you a video. say computer, but you're a Mac guy. Yeah, these were these were computer computers. These, these were, were these, these were, were heavy really objects. Good. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, and our trusty air cards, uh, which you know now we couldn't. If the campaign was in uh, was happening right now, the kind of files that people expect to see, we would not have been able to put up with these little air cards. So actually, like the movies have gotten kind of beefier, but the bandwidth hasn't. So actually, you know, we in a way we were lucky that it was a little more primitive then. But all three of us were able to do anything, but then we would divide it up. You know, that someone would jump on the riser to make sure that we get the live stream started and just to get capture the speech. Uh, we would have one person who would immediately start editing the last event that we had done. 
See, yeah. I love this because, Josh, this is one of the ways that the Obama campaign was so innovative. I mean, beyond the social media and the ability to connect with people and to gather this incredibly strong list of people uh, and, and their emails and activate folks who were then activating others, you all were literally putting up live streams of events and following the, the candidate, uh, the senator, uh, around the country and creating this, this visual uh, reference for everything that was going on so that you didn't have to depend on what you saw on the television news, that if you went to the website, that there was all of this wealth of material, a library that you created, and that was the kind of thing that uh, really had never been done on a campaign trail before. Yeah, it's an incredible archive of stuff, and, uh, you know, uh, all in all, people watched people a lot of people watch it because they were very interested in, in seeing what Barack Obama had to say but it was people would come to the website and we kept it very well stocked so you see very even numbers amongst a lot of the videos not a lot of spikes and you know this was almost like a television station as much as it was like an internet station because you have reg people coming in you know waiting for the next thing waiting to see the next thing following along the Obama campaign in the summer of 2007 and into 2008 and also looking closely at the Romney campaign I was struck by how these two specific campaigns perhaps from the candidate down, had a great understanding of the power of the visual medium as opposed to how hard John Favreau worked on writing all the words of a speech. You know, that will look fine with, with words on paper, but it also has to be packaged up in a way that can be digestible. And I thought the Romney campaign did a great job, and I thought the Obama campaign did a great job. Did you have a sense, Aaron, that uh, what you were creating would ultimately be in, in a... Uh, President Barack Obama presidential library someday feeding the multimedia aspects of how you teach future generations about what happened 2008 to 2012? No, not at all. It was just a scramble to get it done every day. Every day was, you know, every day you try something a little different and it's a little bit easier. So it seems a little less impossible. But, you know, we're doing five, six events a day. And so there wasn't time for rumination. I mean, we would be uploading until the plane would hit over cloud cover, which is known as the slider principle named after Jessica Slider who was, uh, you know, one of the key editors, uh, you can just, you know, up until about 20, 30,000 feet, you can just barely squeeze something onto the YouTube. You can still get that signal up on the plane, even though they tell you you should have that phone on. Uh, Josh, one of the things that, uh, that, that, that I'm really interested in is we start to move from the campaign and uh, Arun's uh, uh, career inside the White House is this idea that audio becomes such a really critical element yes. of, of any capture or acquisition of video. I know this, uh, Arun, you know this, and, and so does Josh. And and I can tell you, working so closely with uh, George W. Bush, I was loath to put a wireless microphone on the man uh, because, A, you can't guarantee that you're the only one who's going to be picking up what he's saying, and you never know what the president's actually going to say. Uh, but having said that, how did you deal with the audio issues? I know it's technical, Josh. He's probably sneering at me, but I'm fascinated about how you would do that and now, protect audio, the boss. Uh, audio is the most important thing, period. Actually, I'm not just saying that because that was my formal specialty. Uh, in oh, I know it's and, true, uh, but explain speaking, to people but, why that is. Well, I mean, it's the entire it's the entire way you're communicating any kind of idea with someone. They uh, that you can always just watch anything, but it's only by listening that you're actually taking anything. So, how did you guys tackle that? I mean, you have a wireless lav on the on very on very rarely. Only if we were doing a direct to camera or a specific script taping. Uh, you know. So you were picking up gnats. 
Yeah, uh, I or did. Malt box. I did. Yeah, malt box for the speeches, okay. and then um, I did put on a uh, four sixteen, which is kind of, you know an an older kind of dialogue movie mic. Which something I, that was uh, multi-directional. Uh, something that's uh, you know a very powerful shotgun. Yeah, and uh, and I use it, but you know I think more so than just how do you grab the audio without using wireless. I think what's interesting about it is it, it informs what the job is because you know I'm in the White House Photography Office. Uh, which is, you know, a, a venerable institution at this point. It's, you know, been around for a while. So but, that was your home within the White House? Yes. And, and the only real difference between myself and the photographers who, co- who cover, you know, literally everything the president does is that there is audio. And so there is important times when you want to leave. You want to leave the room. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be influencing the way someone's behaving when they're trying to run the country. And I don't even just mean the president. I mean, you know, all kinds of people who are working in the West Wing. You guys have been there, you know, like people. Well, Josh has spoken about this before, too. And we we had a conversation, Josh, with David Hume Kennerly. Uh, And I want you to make that point about what audio does to the, it's sort of that principle that, you know, you affect the outcome by just the virtue of your presence, right? Well, I mean, isn't that what, what the, the few tapes that there are of the Kennedy Oval Office and the Johnson, uh, the Johnson tape. The Johnson tapes tell us a lot of things. A lot it, of things, it, as well as the Nixon uh, Watergate tapes. Obviously, the, the the presence of audio and documenting what is actually said is the most uh, dynamic and potentially explosive thing that happens in the West Wing, and that's why a David Hume Kennerly or a Bob McNeely uh, uh, can sit as a fly in the wall because they're only. Uh, shooting digital pictures now and used to be film, but it, but a picture uh, can be interpreted in a thousand different ways, and audio is audio. So was that self-discretion for you, or was there someone saying, hey, get the hell out of here? Uh, very often. I, I can only think of a couple of times where someone, you know, wasn't get the hell out of here, but someone's like, hey, you know. You can say get the hell this. out of here in the in the West uh, Wing with just a, a look of, just an eye shot. No, but it's not even looks. It was very much self-policing. It's something yeah. that, yeah. you know, you get a good sense of. And when you're not sure, you ask somebody. And then usually they have a, you know, either a kind of good reason or a very good reason. It's never a bad reason. And there was an institution uh, when I worked uh, for President Clinton and when Adam worked for President Bush, and I'm sure that they're still there. It's run by the military. It's called White House Television. Mm-hmm. And Part of Waka. Clinton's part of uh, the White House Communications Agency. Yeah. And for us, they were they were battlefield uh, documentarians. These guys had done tours of duty. Yeah, uh, a lot of in, combat in, cam guys. Yeah, very but, impressive people. But they came back and they, they shot uh, basically the goings-on at the White House, but you, you wondered if they could see the aspects of it as creatively as an NYU film student could. So uh, we And we never really saw... Uh, a whole lot of use for White House television footage. We knew it all went to the archives, but we didn't repurpose it or share it publicly in a in a timely or contemporaneous way at all. So I'm wondering, Aaron, how do you? Where's the dividing line between what White House television does and what you do? Uh, I think what White House TV does is great, and I, uh, and I'm really glad that uh, we're able to put all of the president's speeches and remarks out on something like whitehouse.gov, something that's free, something that's public domain. You know, regardless of who's president, I think the American people have a right to be able to look up and watch a video and of what their president And that's a very did. good point, though, too, because, you know, I want to hear the end of this answer, because Josh has, has brought up this point of, during his tenure, 
it really didn't have an outlet and it was going right to the archives and we didn't have uh, the capability technologically to share it. We started to do a little bit of it, but we're talking about WMVs, mm-hmm. small, low res, and just the, the user interface was very poor uh, in the Bush administration. It was nothing that we were going to make a transition to. I produced two uh, documentaries at the end of the Bush administration, part of our Bush record project, that heavily, I mean, almost entirely came from White House TV imagery. So for people, when they saw it, uh, it was additional stuff that we had shot with the president, but you'd never seen it. But in the Obama administration, you it's out every day shoot. in real time almost. You see a lot of what they shoot. And you yeah. can download it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and use it, you know, however you so see fit. So where's that dividing line? Josh was pointing you towards that. So that's Waka and White House TV, but as Josh said, what what's the separation? You're another camera. They are mix. getting all of the official public, you know, records of the president. When, when they're not filming him at a speech, they are traveling with the press pool in case something should come up. They are there to cover it just like the press would to make sure that we have our own copy and to make sure that, you know, the archives are fully populated with this. It's the equivalent, you know, and you guys worked at the, uh, at the White House, you see those books everywhere. The uh, papers of President Ford, the papers of President blah, blah, blah. Right. This is essentially the same thing. It's just the videos of President Obama. You know, they should all be bound together in one place where, where people can see them. So, Chothri, though, you're 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 a third wheel. I mean, it, it's just different than White House TV. So yes. explain how your role evolved. And, you know, it, was it purely from a political perspective? Do you see it from... No, no. Okay, so explain that. Uh, I think that it's... it's uh, my role in the campaign and my role in the White House well, are actually Well, specifically in the White House, yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the White House, you know, I serve primarily to make sure that there is a historical, you know, document of this presidency in video. It's the, that should be the complement of the photo historical record. It is not the mandate of WACA to, you know, preserve, you know, a truthful documentary representation of the president for, for all time. It's their job to, like, make sure they hit their marks and to make sure that those speeches are, are gotten. So it does So you're filling in the spaces between the events. The transitional moments. I, I talk about it. I, I When I decide what I'm going to shoot, I pretend that there's someone is making, someone out there in 20-whatever is making a 300-hour documentary about Barack Obama and doesn't have enough cutaways. Oh, please. <laughs> Spare us. And that is what I'm shooting. All the cutaways. All the all the stairs, all the loading docks, all the motorcades, you know, all the stuff everybody just forgets and leaves out. But you also did something really interesting maybe a year, year and a half ago that I'd never seen. I was, uh, as many people of our, many of our listeners know, uh, an advanced man uh, in many respects, and I'd love to go out five or six days before the president arrives in a city and do all the politics and planning and production and choreography and design that go into allowing the president to come to Springfield, Illinois, or Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. And either you or one of your colleagues actually accompanied one of these advanced teams out and gave us about a seven or eight minute mini documentary of what the life is like for a presidential advance team. And prior to your show, I think, that had largely been shrouded in mystery. How did you decide that this is one aspect of presidential operations you were going to share through the web? Uh, I think um, the primary... Jason Jang, who was uh, the new media video director, this was a very pa- a product that was very much a passion of his. He um, wanted to make a whole series of Inside the White House, uh, which which he did, including uh, a really excellent one on the Marine sentries who stand outside the door mm-hmm. with, with the priceless YouTube footage of the blowing over. I think it's in the Clinton administration, but the Christmas tree blows over. Uh, and it's not the Situation Room. inside a bunch of things. And uh, he really wanted to show this advancing. Because like you're saying, it's so funny. It's like any fictional, even non-fictional, forget it, any account 
of politics leaves the advanced people out. And if you're actually in politics, they are everything. They're your every day. You know, you saying that just now reminds me that uh, I want to remind our audience here on POTUS uh, that you're listening to Polyoptics, Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Adam Belmar, joined by Josh King. And our guest today is uh, Arun Chaudhry. And uh, he's uh, the videographer, or formerly the, the personal videographer, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. And uh, as you're pointing out, uh, this is polyoptics at its essence, but it's 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 an inside baseball that we want some other people to understand that what goes on behind the scenes is so robust, so well staffed, so far in advance of game day that uh, these goings on and 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 the elements that uh, that Josh knows so well, having lived it as an advance man, uh, and now you documenting it, really does quite literally pull back the curtain and show people this is how it happens. Yeah, and I thought that, that piece was nice because it also just mixed in, you know, the idea. It, it, pulling back the curtain, I think, gives people an idea of how much more authentic it is than it seems sometimes. You know, you're like, oh, you're at a, a football helmet factory that's like the most crazy. It almost sounds like it's a Doonesbury comic, you know. But then you're there and you meet the people and you see some of the people who are there. And you hear when they, when they hear the president might be coming. You know, it doesn't matter who's president. The president's coming to town. That's a big deal. And just to see that impact on people is just wonderful. Another thing the White House television unit doesn't do, doesn't have the mandate to do, but you did, is help explain policy not featuring the president uh, to break down some very complex economic issues like the Bush era tax cuts when you had uh, one of the president's former economic advisors, Austin Goolsby, standing in front of a whiteboard, Uh, almost like almost like John Madden breaking down a football play. How did you decide that this is something that we got to put up on the web? Uh, this was a, a new media project again. I think that it actually came right from the top. I think Macon Phillips uh, was really uh, excited about this project. Um, I think it's wonderful. I love seeing it. I never was too much uh, involved in the production of it, so which was great because then I feel like I got, they got to you know weigh in afterwards or you'd see Austin in the hall. And I remember once I suggested that he needed a catchphrase because I thought the whiteboard's great, but it just needs one more element like, let's take it to the whiteboard. I thought was good, A, or B, I thought we can talk about this here, or we can talk about it on the whiteboard. whiteboard, Yeah, Yeah, I thought both of those would be excellent. We can do this here, or we can do it on the whiteboard. We can do it the easy way, or I can take it downtown. (laughs) Yeah, but I think they do a great job with it, and it's not easy. You know, you think it's just people scribbling on there, but it's got to be, it's handwritten, and it's got to be legible. So the, you know, the graphic design team, they get their markers out, and they make it happen. Josh, I love the fact that uh, uh, Arun is talking about... uh, uh, the new media folks. When I, when I was in the White House, m- my unit was solely focused on the President of the United States. If the boss wasn't involved, I wasn't involved unless it came from the top <laughs> and we were going to support the Vice President or... You know, ONDCP needed something, and that is more like our role in the photo office. And that's you know, what like I was saying. I'm exactly. responsible to becoming the president. Uh, all these, um, the couple of films that I've made that don't directly star the president um, were all made when he was on vacation. So I took my vacations in Louisiana, uh, Iraq, and the Sudan. <laughs> you know, Josh has pointed out on previous episodes of, uh, of Polyoptics here on POTUS uh, that this president, and you being directly responsible for it, really took the national radio address, a very intimate medium, and brought it forward uh, into uh, a, a YouTube address. Even more intimate. Yeah, we'll talk about that for a second. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things technically that people probably don't appreciate. Uh, when the president's doing something like this in a visual medium, there needs to be a closed caption element for people who can't hear. Uh, oh, those just, things all get added by absolutely law. Absolutely, yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah. So just talk about, you know, just 
because I can tell you, and Josh, you you talk about uh, about your experiences too. You know, when you say intimate, I mean literally. We would do these things in the Oval quickly, early on a Thursday morning uh, or a Friday morning. I heard you morning. guys did them really early because we, we tend to do them late. Yeah, and the boss yeah. was always. I mean, what was your experience, Josh? I mean, we didn't think about the the setting. It's just when the boss had some time, we got in there and did it. Well, the president's weekly radio address is a, a tradition going back, uh, as far as I can remember, to the Reagan administration and probably before. It certainly goes back to fireside chats and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and they were done religiously and weekly, and they were done in audio only, and they were ca- carried by usually the cable nets on a Saturday to give us a 30-second clip or so over a still picture of the president talking into a microphone or just the presidential seal. In the Clinton White House, they were used as a public outreach opportunity. He often would do them live because, remember, President yeah, Clinton didn't. Too, yeah. the President Clinton did not vacate the White House on many weekends. He didn't love going up to Camp David, and so every weekend at about uh, nine o'clock or so, or nine fifteen a.m., uh, the Oval Office would begin to fill up uh, with invited guests, and it was a, a moment to really allow for some a, a special interaction with the president. We would put probably eighty people into the Oval Office, and then Richard Strauss uh, would would quiet everyone down. Yeah, I can't yeah. even Wait imagine this. I don't this. know if I'm we ever staggered. put 80 people in there. Listen, this this is President Bill Clinton. This is an opportunity to meet and have the couches are bigger. I don't know. <laughs> but, no, we would take the couches away. Oh, yeah. right. Okay, yeah, we uh, The don't ushers would come in and strike the, the couches. The ushers staff Poor would ushers. Take, the usher Saturday staff would morning. take everything out on a Saturday morning. We'd cram eighty people in there, and uh, and the the room would go deadly quiet. And the president would have a script. He'd have his uh, his uh, Sennheiser microphones on his desk, and we would count down five, four, three, two, one. We'd he'd do the radio address live, one take, uh, and then. Richard would say we're clear, and it would turn into a photo session. The Unbelievable. Would... If you could sell a ticket, they did it in the Clinton administration. That's right. Um, we was a Shep now, too, I'm going to say, not a, not a Sennheiser. Oh, is that right? I'm Technology has changed. Well, that, uh, you know. But, but what, I want, what, I'm, what I would ask Aaron is, what about losing the tradition, the beautiful tradition of radio? Because there's so much TV the rest of the week. And so I see the president's weekly address. I don't think it's lost. Death. It's just addition. It's just an addition because the, the, the thing is still very much audio driven, you know, uh, even even as elaborate as it would get if it was you know with a with a a, a b-roll or you know nat pops and stuff it still is just a music video it still is just a, a, a track yeah, of audio i don't know I, I i know where you're going with this and i and especially I because it's i mean what we do is totally it's the president sitting someplace and talking to you arun chathri let me ask you uh about this of all the stuff that you shot and and as as, as josh rightly put out at the beginning not or maybe even a large part of it has never been seen and won't be seen for many, many years to come. My question is, uh, Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. um, is there video that exists around that, that picture in the no. uh, sit room? Absolutely not, no. Okay, so you, no. B- beyond the... beyond the. Uh, I mean, maybe I did not shoot it. I don't, I don't think so. Okay, no, but my I point was speak. that, uh, you know, inside the, the situation room was something that, that you executed against. I, I've but, shot in the situation room uh, for natural disaster-like meetings, stuff like that, not foreign policy right. stuff. You know, I just don't think it's, you know, worth anything. You know, number worth one, creation. the people in the room, and number two, yeah, it's, you know, worth, worth creation, I think. Uh, the sentence of what happens in, the, you know, and the president decided to do this in the situation room is actually just as evocative as the video of it. Maybe not as the picture, but for the same phenomenons we're describing, yep. it actually, like, it's so understated that the whole thing's going to be so understated anyway. Uh, 
So, you know, uh, on that day, I did get very interesting stuff, though. You know, I probably didn't know two hours before you did, and even then I was, you know, slightly... But you were chasing, you were still doing your job, not necessarily appreciating everything that was going on around you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I think, you know... Where was I actually when this happened? You know, all, all, the, all those kind of things. It's really interesting. But that night, there was, you know, uh, the same things you're talking about. It's like, I'm not going to film the middle of the meeting where he decides to kill Osama bin Laden. You know, uh, that's not the, that's, that's not even the fun stuff because, again, you just describe what that is and you know what it is. It's, it's the transitional stuff. You did the stuff you don't know. Like, you'll be able to see the chief of staff calling a congressional leader to let them know. Arun Chaudhry, uh, a, a unique and special segment on uh, polyoptics here on POTUS. You are one of us, and we have so much more to discuss. Uh, we should tell people that you have left the White House. You are the father of, uh, of one. Yes, of little Leo. A little Leo, who's uh, dominating time for mom and dad. And uh, you're working for a great communication shop in Washington called Fenton Communications. That's right. And you've got a personal project that you're doing right now? Uh, yeah, I have a writing project that I'm working on. Uh, that, uh, you know, trying to draw in a lot of uh, my uh, personal experiences with lessons that I've learned as a filmmaker, you know, working in politics. Outstanding. We want to explore more of that. Thank you for joining us in Polyoptics. Great. Adam, from listening to Ann Compton talking about 9-11 and Aran Chaudhry talking about what he's seen in the Obama administration, we've been given on this day before the 10th anniversary of 9-11 an incredible picture into what actually happens in the White House and on the road during times of crisis. And what the presidency has become uh, utilizing technology and visual communications techniques in this modern era and the lessons that were really learned from September 11th, 2001, uh, I feel like we completed a circle today and really once again delivered on the promise of pulling back the curtain here on polyoptics. Yeah, it was a great journey in. Uh, I think we, we pushed Aran a little bit on on whether uh, his weekly president's weekly address really has that old school mentality of uh, of the president's weekly radio address that harkens back to FDR. And, and I, I still think that this White House needs to get a little bit of its old school on as it, as it uses some of these uh, uh, tools of communications in the modern era. Well said, and uh, I think appropriate here on POTUS, Politics in the United States. Um, Adam Belmar, Josh King, uh, telling you that uh, we appreciate you joining us every week for these conversations, trying to bring in some of the best people in the country who have actually served and can shed light and help peel back uh, another layer of the onion as we, as we bring you inside uh, the presidency and Washington from uh, a visual communications perspective. You can find our broadcasts on POTUS Channel 124, but also at polyoptics.com, and you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash polyoptics. Josh, until next time. Until next time, Adam, happy to wrap up this 25th episode of Polyoptics with you.